Okay, so today we're in Darlington with uh, Tom Wilson. Thanks very much, Tom. Hi, Simon. For agreeing to uh, invite me up to your house. Um, well, let's get into it first of all. So can you tell us what your business, Racing Squared, does? Um, so the business, Racing Squared, so what we do is we offer analysis or analytics services to partners all over the world for bloodstock sales. Um, to unpackage it a little bit, we've got two main offerings or two main products. So the first is what I call pedigree modeling. So we use a lot of pedigree sale and consigner data to produce expected ratings for horses at sales and, and the sales catalogs. Second is what you've probably seen a little bit on Twitter, hopefully, which is biomechanical evaluations, which is really then using computer programs and software to evaluate the movement of horses. And then from that to derive a expected performance level for those horses as well. Yeah, now uh, biomechanics is fairly new to me. As a mm. previous interviewee mentioned it to me a couple of years ago. Um, so when you started this, was there already like a database in the program which you've sort of got or did you have to develop it? Um, maybe I explain the, the history a little bit because it ties in kind of the answer to that question. Um, so I started doing kind of this pedigree analysis probably in about mid to early 2021 so it was actually a, it was a lockdown project and started doing quite a lot of coding in lockdown learning different programming languages like r and python and for the yearling sales last year um i was doing this first kind of component which was pedigree modeling and using pedigree data from results going all the way back to 2008 actually to then predict the ability of yearlings that were consigned in catalogs and that would kind of hit the track in the, the following year. Um, what I'd noticed in doing that and doing that with a couple of people that we were working with is that we were missing a little bit of the physical side. So it's, in some ways, it's quite easy to tell a good pedigree because it's all there on the page. It's there in the, in the sales catalog and you can tell um, the, the kind of yearling comes from a, a strong sire, comes from a dam that was either a good racetrack producer, uh, racetrack performer or good producer of progeny. And what we were missing a little bit was the physical side. So the biomechanic analysis is an attempt to kind of marry together a physical evaluation of the movement of horses and in this case yearlings to also the traditional practice of kind of pedigree analysis, albeit that I do that slightly differently because I'm using certain analytical and data science orientated techniques to, to perform that analysis. And if I was to summarize what biomechanics is, and it's really the study of movement or it's the study of motion. And that's what we're trying to evaluate when we're looking at yearlings is how well do they move? Um, what is the relationship between key body parts, the kind of the structural composition of the horse and how they, how they walk in the context of a yearling sale or how they breeze in the context of a, of a breeze up sale and almost use a scientific approach to put a number on what has historically been an art form in racing. So people inherently look, kind of good judges of horses, look at horse and will qualify it as a good walker or a bad walker. Here we just try and use computer software and coding to kind of put a performance figure against that and to then kind of catalog and database it from an analytical perspective. Okay, that's interesting. The, the, um, so have you found that those with a good eye still go for the go for the horses that you've spotted on your biomechanics yeah i think it gives you comfort when you've got someone who's a good human judge 
and then you've got a computer program and when the opinions converge it gives you a level of confidence say in the prediction or in the evaluation um what i use at the sales and it's a little bit inspired by how some betting syndicates work so i don't know kind of Benham or Bloom or Jelco or Dr. Nick or kind of the big betting syndicates in the world, what you would typically do as I understand it, you would have your kind of computer team or your computer modeling team and they would create a baseline set of probabilities for a horse race, for a football match. But then what you'd also do is you'd then marry that together with different disciplines. So in horse racing, you might also then have the form team or you might have the speed figures team or you might have the physical team and then what you do is you uplift or you downgrade your probabilities also based on that human assessment. So we kind of try to bring both together. That is actually the methodology that we deploy at the sales. So it's part com computer, part human. But to answer your question, when the two things converge, that's normally a, a good indication of a good horse. Yeah, and as a, as a thing, I mean, how long has biomechanics been about? Um, as a, as a study, I mean, it's um, a concept that's prevalent across all of physics and is probably kind of adopted in certain other sports a little bit more than racing. I mean, cycling uses biomechanics and kinematics. You might have also seen me talking about quite a lot to evaluate the performance of cyclists or the performance potential of cyclists. I would say, I mean, there's a couple of leading proponents of it in the horse racing game that I'm aware of. Um, I think in one of your previous interviews, Jamie Piggott mentions it. He was um, the one. He was the one that first yeah. mentioned it. To so me. Jamie Piggott, Piggott it was a great interview. Bloodstock agent, um, and I think they partner with a, a team or a company that does a biomechanics service out of South Africa. I think, um, and they've been doing that a couple of years. What introduced me to it was actually a guy called Byron Rogers. Um, now Byron is the leading expert in this topic in horse racing globally. I would be a fast follower or early adopter of those type of things, but like Byron's the man basically. He runs the company Performance Genetics. So they do a lot of biomechanic analysis, genetic, genomic profiling of horses, both from a kind of a mating evaluation perspective and also then from a, a sales perspective. But I actually met Byron probably this time last year and showed him my pedigree stuff. And then he kind of put me on, oh, well, if you, if you want to try and marry up the physical side as well, this is the sort of stuff that you could be looking at. So kind of a chance, well, not a chance meeting, but a quick meeting with Byron at Doncaster, actually. We were in the, uh, we're next to the race course in Doncaster and that kind of sparked this new venture and I then set about six months building a database of kind of historic videos of yearlings, breeze of horses, and then building a algorithm that they could compare performance across them. Okay, and it's cinematics? Is that kinematics. Kinematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to say it again. I knew mm. I'd get it wrong. Um, in my question, I've got a big long, but you can explain to us what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar. Similar discipline as biomechanics. It's basically the um, study of motion of objects or specific body parts. So maybe to unpackage it a little bit from, for horses. Um, so what we do is when we evaluate a yearling at the sales, I mean, we take a video of the yearling. Um, and that can be a video from the sales ground or a video from the, the sales catalog. I then run it through some software. It's actually some open source software called Deep Lab Cut, which is, is developed by a couple of uh, professors. I think it's a husband and wife team in the US. 
Um, actually, a study like the movement of mice and stuff like that. So especially motion tracking. So and you get this quite a lot in kind of computer vision and machine learning at the moment is tracking motion of objects through videos, be it humans, be it animals. But they were using it on like mice in a laboratory setting. Um, and again, Byron put me onto this, um, but almost the same code set. And I mean, you have to adapt the code quite a bit and you have to train a new model. But again, you're just teaching the codes to recognize certain body parts as they move through a, through a, um, a video. And then kind of what I take off that, and this is then the ki kinematic part, we take different measurements of the horse like as they're moving. So I take like the angles of the joints. So we're looking at like the angle of the kind of joint between the hock and the fetlock and the fetlock and the foot. We're capturing data on the trajectory of those joints. So how they move uh, across the video. We're also ca uh, capturing some metrics on velocity and acceleration of the joints. So how fast, I don't know, does the, the knee or the hock move as the horse strides out and that type of stuff. So kinematics is kind of capturing numbers and creating metrics based on the motion or the movement of a individual object. That's okay. kind of what we do. So is there a, in the computer system, mm. a perfect horse that you, you're going to score points out of 10 yeah. to get to? Is that, would it sort of come up bingo if there's one that's like a 99.9? .9? Yeah. So, so what we do is, um, I mean, and these things are not without error. Like all models are approximations of reality. So I will not sit here and pretend that, hey, we've got an algorithm that finds you all of the elite horses. Like, and, and we can talk about the performance level later on. Um, what I do, almost what you do in kind of machine learning when it comes to the images and videos, this is an oversimplistic example, but what you would normally do is train an algorithm. You'd give it like a hundred pictures of a cat and a hundred pictures of a dog and you'd train it to predict what a cat looks like and what a dog looks like. So what we've done is we've taken around 5,000 videos of horses walking and moving at the yearling sales since 2018 and then trained it on what elite horses look like and how elite horses move versus how poor horses look like and how poor horses move. And the way I categorize that is I take um, horses that achieved an official rating or racing post rating of, of above 90 into the elite bracket and anything that achieved a rating of below 60, so well, 60 and below goes in the poor bracket. And we train the model to then look at new videos as they come in and basically categorize them in one of those two buckets. And what it does is it um, kind of derives a percentage probability. It gives you a percentage prediction that a horse is either in the elite bucket or the poor bucket basically. So you get like a 90% chance that this horse that you're looking at through this video that you've ran through the software is an elite horse. Like, yeah, and you can never guarantee 90%, but that's at least the categorization and classification algorithm that we use. From that, what I do is I then derive an expected official rating. So based on those probabilities, we place it on a scale between 50 and I normally use 115 because when you get into like above 120, they're the, the real champions, but they're so rare, they're complete outliers. And based on those probabilities, we put it on that scale and say, well, is that then a 90 horse, a 100 horse, a 70 horse, et cetera, et cetera. Have you, have you been able to trial it on historical 
video, for example, Nijinsky or Frankel and see how many point, how they came out? I've not done it on like some of those famous ones. I've only done it on horses where we've got sales videos since 2018. Um, so what I rely on is, I mean, you need the video of the horse walking and it's probably COVID that accelerated it a little bit. Like it wasn't really that kind of widespread adopted as a practice, but obviously then people not being able to go to the sales accelerated adoption of technology, um, but probably back to 2018. So our database goes back to 2018 and we have pretty much all horses that have had videos that have been through yearling sales globally since then catalogued there and yeah then we look at some of the the more famous ones like i don't know native trail scored really well on kind of breeze up biomechanics and then obviously it was a kind of a elite horse that came out of the breeze ups and some other famous ones one from the breeze ups this year who's done very well um, and there's a couple actually but would be marshman um and now i wasn't involved in that purchase whatsoever that's nick bradley and that's entirely nick bradley and nick bradley is a fantastic judge of horses but probably to your earlier question when you see someone who's a great human judge and then you have a bit of computer software or an algorithm that agrees that's probably a good indication that's a good horse but that also rated marshman very highly when i go back and retrospectively look at uh, the results there and i think he's now favorite for the middle park after uh, Noble style's not going. Well, hopefully it does well. I, su I suppose in an ideal world, you'd like to be able to jump forward 10 years with 10 years worth of data. Yeah. And then you'd, you'd be much more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the only thing you can do at the moment. I, I try and publish as much as possible, like on Twitter and like other platforms, and it probably drives people mad, like what the results are or what the projections are. But the only way to do it or the only way to truly prove the concept is to like publish the data and then see how it gets on so i've got all i've got all the back testing data in the world going back four years but people want to see it working in practice and it's also why we've bought a couple of yearlings this this year to 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 try it out skin in the game and uh yeah live by what we uh, preach a little bit Okay, Tom. You talked about um, you talked about skinning the game in the last yeah. last race. So you launched uh, NG Racing, which is syndicates in two thousand and nineteen. Yeah. Um, so were the horses chosen using biomechanics back then? No, they weren't. I mean, that's a, a relatively like new discipline and almost new method that I'm working with and that we're working with. Um, as I said, that was a bit of a covid project kind of learning a code and learning kind of building certain uh, machine learning algorithms and models um those horses um were picked at so i used to run a pod so where the the history behind that i used to run a podcast with one of my best friends james and james and i kind of grew up together and been really kind of focused on racing since we were at least since we were 18 and kind of formative years spent in betting shops kind of figuring out form even looking at the kind of the bags cards for the grounds and all of that type of stuff all of the classic mistakes that you uh, that you make when you uh, first step into the betting world but um so we were doing that together for about 10 years and just generally bouncing different ideas like analytical ideas about how you analyze racing how you interpret form how horses can improve what factors contribute to horses improving how can you identify hidden ability and hidden form um, 
and we ran a podcast um, for a couple of years doing kind of weekly form and orientated around some of those concepts. But on the back of the podcast, we thought um, good idea to then try and run a couple of syndicates, really just as a, a bit of a democratic way for people to get in the game. Um, and like ran what I think is a, a very fair cost. We try and keep it as reasonable as possible. And um, we have very reasonable kind of rates with the trainer that we use in, in the Northeast here. Um, but those, the initial batch of horses were really bought when we were really quite obsessed with hidden improvement in horses. Um, and that's really about, it's like we want to do probably in any market, any betting market or bloodstock market, you want to find something that the price you're going to pay for it doesn't really reflect the true ability that you're getting or it's un undervalued based on the hypothesis that you have for, for the asset or for the horse. So, I mean, there we were really looking at horses that we felt had either been running over the wrong trip. So I like trip moves based on kind of pedigree and the profile of the pedigree was a big thing. So if we looked for a sales catalogue and thought that horse has been running over a mile and it needs a mile and a half, that was an angle in for us. And that was therefore perhaps a reason why said horse could be undervalued. One of the first horses we bought, um, he was 6,000 um, guineas or pounds from Doncaster um, called Swinging Eddie. Now he is like, he's probably, he's, we love him. He's an absolute hero, but he's a moderate horse. He's a 65 rated handicapper, but he's won four races for us. Um, and we bought him and we bought him dead cheap. But the reason we bought him was because early in his races, he was just pulling his head off like he couldn't settle. Um, and this is also another angle you see quite a lot with horses in training sales. Horses that are too keen or can't settle, can't display their true ability. So you're not really seeing the full culmination of their ability potential being displayed in races on the track. So because he was so keen and pulling so often early on, um, he couldn't display that ability. And then through a period of training, we managed to get him to calm down a little bit. And I mean, as I say, he's not an elite horse, but he's a, he's a decent handicapper who's won a couple of races for us. And we managed to get him settled and to win a couple of races. And that's credit to the trainer and it's credit to a couple of the jockeys that have uh, that have ridden him. So it's kind of those different angles, Simon, is understand what, what else could be there and come up with a reason behind it and then basically back your opinion. Right, so, so they, are they run as a business that will continue into bloodstock after the horse's racing career is finished or are you looking to lock in a profit or, you know, or is it just purely fun for people that join? What's the actual angle? Of? Yeah, I think like the, the business angle was always going to be to buy horses that you hopefully improve and then you can sell for a, for a profit. Um, it's really hard with horses in training because they're, they're effectively cast-offs, let's put it bluntly. People don't want them. Any or, or certainly the ones you can get for cheap, people don't want anymore. So there's something defective with them. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to find what that defect is or what that hidden abil ability potential is and you're going to try and unlock it. Now that's a seriously hard game, but if you do manage to do that and you manage to improve them, then you can kind of get financially recompensed for it. Probably the best proponents of that, in certainly that I know and in the country, are the horse watchers and the Dixon brothers and the rest of the guys that kind of run that business there. I mean, those guys are excellent judges in understanding why a particular horse perhaps or, or understanding that a horse may have more ability than 
what how it looks in the form book or how it looks in the kind of currently residing handicap mark and you've seen it with i think it's razel as one of their kind of really good kind of flagship horses the last couple of years ross collin and these are horses that they've bought in say the 60s to 70s bracket but have turned out to be 90s horses so I think when, and I think you had Chris Dixon on here a couple of years ago, but that's a little bit the game for the horses in training. And I would say that's what we were doing originally. And now some of the, the latest ventures are actually in yearlings, which, I mean, it gives you a different type of opportunity, but also a different type of challenge. So you've basically got a blank canvas. So you've, got this, you've not got a horse that is kind of inherently defective or someone doesn't want that you're trying to fix or you're trying to improve. You've got a horse that you've profiled you want, but then you have to get them on the track and get them to deliver on the ability potential that you uh, feel is there. It's almost a bit more of a purer play than, say, buying uh, the horses in training. But to answer your question, I think that the main business model is to buy horses, improve them, and then sell them, whilst also giving people like a, a very equitable and democratic and hopefully fun way of engaging with a, a syndicate business like we um we have kind of social kind of channel groups for each of our syndicate horses we use an app called telegram which is a bit like a, a whatsapp type app but like everyone in the syndicate's in the group everyone gets the same information um there's no filtering like you'll hear the bad stuff as well as the good stuff and syndicating horses is stuff like horses are fragile animals they quite frequently get injured um, the one of the first updates I ever had to give after we bought this swing Eddie horse was that he ran into a fence and he was injured and potentially out for half a season or a season. And this is when you've just got 30 strangers together off Twitter who don't know each other. You've basically all sold each other the dream that you're going to buy this horse and they're going to hit the track for you. And then five days later, he runs into a fence. But that's what we try and do. It's equitable ownership. And the people in the syndicate hear the same as I hear from the training from the trainer and in the end that's what gives you a rich ownership experience it's not just hearing the good stuff it's also hearing the challenging stuff so that you can learn from it in the future um, and it's also about like having a an equal stake basically in a democratic stake and say you can say what you want you can complain about what you want um, but in the end you're kind of all in it together and you've done well you've had 80 percent winners five horses four of one yeah so we've had yeah, we, it was 100% this time last year. <laughs> we had first four horses, we, uh, we got all won. Um, and then the, the latest one hasn't won. He's, um, he's been quite challenging, to be honest with you. It's a horse, uh, and the guys in the syndicate won't mind me saying, I think, because we all share the same outlook. But we bought him with great hopes. Like you, um, and the game always humbles you, I think. I think when, when you listen to Aidan and Brian say that you're learning every day and you have to be very humble in the face of the sport, you really have to be. But I think he was a bit of a humbling experience. We kind of thought, oh, we've done great. The process works. We'll buy another one. We scaled up. So we'd, we'd only spent like, I think we spent 6,000 on the first horse, 9,000 on the second horse, 20,000 on the third horse. We spent 30,000 on this horse. Witham River, he's a Galileo, he was out of Joseph O'Brien's yard and he was going to be the flagship and we just haven't managed to get him to work um, and he hasn't won for us and he's dropped down the handicap so it's always going to happen in the end, you're buying horses, not all of them are going to win but that was a bit of a savage lesson. Yeah, I was interviewing um, 
an owner train a, a breeder trainer the other week and she said to me what people don't realize the, the moment a jockey's put up on a horse for the first time at a race course the amount of work oh. that's gone into that horse's life to get it to that point yeah so you, buying yearlings you're going to be experiencing all of that yeah Go through which is a bigger gamble than buying a horse that at least you know it's got some sort of ability yeah i mean there's that's the thing is like almost the the risk profile or risk potential is higher because i mean at least if you're buying a horse that's been to the track you know they can get to the track so um but then that's also why you might get certain yearlings cheaper so again it's all kind of a, a risk-based player or it's all a probabilistic assessment on kind of potential gains versus versus risk kind of uh, appetite that you're uh, willing to take. But I think that's the biggest thing that I ever learned with ownership is like what it really takes to, to train horses, to develop them, to keep them sound. I mean, you think about these kind of huge kind of ton animals on these kind of thin legs kind of going around at fast speeds. Like it's quite a miraculous, I mean, that's why we love it as a sport. It's quite a miraculous sight, but everything that goes up to that point is, uh, Oh, it's really extensive, but having the opportunity and again, syndication, I think that, I like the concept of syndication. I know some people don't like it, but I think allowing a broad spectrum of people who experience that is fundamental to the growth of the sport globally and also in this country. Okay, now you use one trainer. Yeah. And it's Grant Tour. Yeah. Got the pronunciation right. It is. In yeah. North Yorkshire. So yeah. I'm going to say why Grant, obviously, because he's a good trainer. Yeah. But any other particular reason? No, Grant's a, Grant's a good story. There's two main reasons. Um, probably found Grant looking at some trainer statistics back in 2018. Um, and he's done well in the last couple of years. Like He's grown quite a lot. And he had a real breakout year in 2021. I think he had about a 20% strike rate, which was phenomenal. He might have been in the top five in the country. But um, we found him in 2018. Um, just because he seemed to be getting more winners and also developing horses that he'd bought that were already in training and improving their handicap marks um, than the cost of the horses that he was given kind of almost allowed. That's, um, it's, it's quite a big metric that we use quite a lot. But I use... Um, in this game everything has to be about context and often we don't understand or pick apart the context enough for example if you just look at win strike rate it doesn't really tell you anything because it's not telling you actually the caliber of horses that a trainer's been given so you might have a trainer that's got a 20 percent strike rate but the average value of horses in the yard is half a million and then you might have another trainer who has a 20 percent strike rate um and the average value of horses in that yard is 50,000. Um, and now strike rate isn't even the best way to qualify performance, but just as an example, it's very important to contextualize those numbers, basically against expectation. So one metric that we use quite a lot is kind of expected performance, expected wins um, against purchase price. So from the value of horses you've got, how many wins should you be expecting? How what percentage of rivals should you be expecting to beat in your races? What level of official rating, ability, kind of mark should these horses be able to get to? Um, and that, that put us on a grant because he was overperforming beyond his expectation. Um, he's also quite close, which helps. Um, he's only half an hour down the road. Um, he's also a very good guy. So when we approached him about could we 
have some horses with him. He suggested we do it over a beer. So I'm never going <laughs> to... When that's the first conversation, now you're pretty much... Uh, I'm already signed up, to be honest with you. Um, just finally on the syndicate. So, I mean, you've got your, your favourite trainer in the north. Syndicates are going well yeah. so far. I touch wood. If they continue to go well, would you consider also having a trainer in the south to, so you could get the geographical spread of your owners, potentially? Yeah, I think so. That would be kind of one of the, the next steps, I think. So we've got um, six horses at the moment. Um with Grant, um, a couple of them might be sold before the end of the year. But I think, yeah, I would like a, a horse in the South. Um, a trainer that I do like a lot is Alice Haynes. Um, kind of started training out of Newmarket. She's done really well the last couple of years. Again, she's performing kind of well above expectation of the stock that she's got. You even see like bigger owners like Ammo Racing have started to give her horses because she's clearly got talent. So, um, Probably the next horse and one that goes to the south I'd like to see with her. So you support owners and trainers in purchasing elite horses through the application of data science. Um, you've already really given us the, you've given us the sort of explanation yeah. of it. Is there anything more to it than what you've already told us? I've got here application of data science, machine learning technology and advanced analytics. So basically, have you explain what that is or is there more to it than so that's that? That's a lot of buzzwords, isn't it? Um, I think maybe let's explain it in practical terms. Um, so at the moment, there is um, a big sale on in Keeneland in, in, in America. So it's kind of mid-September when we're do, doing the interview. Um, now, that's the biggest yearling sale uh, in the world. So you've got 4,000 yearlings that are kind of going through the sales ring in Keeneland. I've got a, a couple of partners that we're working with over there. One's an American trainer out of New York and one is a trainer out of Dubai. But um, so how it works, what we do is kind of work with the trainers up front. Often what we'll do is we'll do some kind of pedigree profiling and pedigree modeling. Um, and then based on pedigree data, produce kind of a short list of horses and expected ability ratings. Um, what I use in the UK is official ratings because that's kind of our ability currency here. What I use in the US is bear figures. It's kind of their ability kind of rating equivalent or kind of handicapping methodology. Um, so we'll do that. We'll build up a shortlist from that. Then what we'll do is kind of closer to the sale, we take the videos of the horses walking, run it through the biomechanics software that I mentioned, kind of put the key markers on the body parts, kind of annotate that video, take some of the measurements like the joint angles and that type of stuff. Um, run that through then our kind of different um, machine learning models. I use Google Cloud quite a lot. Um, it can kind of pay for some of their kind of algorithmic services. Um, it's quite expensive, but you basically can piggyback on Google's infrastructure and then like run all of your, your data through there. So we run that and then that gives us a also a kind of biomechanic rating, let's put it that way. Then what I do is I um, we compare the two and generally what we're looking for in the methodology is hot, two quadrants really. Horses that score elite on pedigree and also elite on biomechanics are a pretty good bet. <laughs> you've basically got two super positive indicators and you've got two kind of predictive, strongly predictive models, uh, models that are giving you a kind of a positive um, rating on that horse. The other technique that I like to use is horses with poor pedigrees but strong biomechanics. Now they're often the value players. 
because basically you're not getting a strong pedigree profile or page, but you're getting a good mover. Um, and they're often, I mean, you always have to pay for a pedigree, so they're often the ones where there's a, a value angle that you can exploit a little bit. Then what we do is we take that data, that gives us a short list, um, then it's over to the vet at the sale. So vet then does the round based on the, the short list, does physicals on all of the horses, does a full physical evaluation, gives them a physical rating. Um, we'll then do scopes, x-rays, so we'll check wind. So we'll do a scope and check the wind. Either if there's a scope in the repository, we'll use that or we'll scope them ourselves if we need to. Any x-rays, like if there's any tendons that need scanning, that type of stuff. And then we'll take the vet's physical rating and compare it to the biomechanic or the pedigree ratings or the kind of amalgamation of those ratings and that'll then form the horses that we go after. So it's, as I said at the start, you're almost using a bit of a human model or a human evalu evaluation. You're combining it with the computer evaluation and from that you're, you're trying to find good horses. So do I assume you're on the hotline to the vet that's over there and get them to check out the yeah, horses? Yeah, so send them, send them a, like a text or a WhatsApp in the morning with the profile. We'll go around and they'll do some written evaluations or a couple of voice notes for us with their feedback and kind of their score and then we crunch it together. Um, and that's the that's pretty much the the methodology end to end and then you've got the the next battle is trying to win them in the in the auction and in the sales ring so that's the worst thing when you see something that they really like and i was beat on one last week it was an inns of court that um also went to i think a very clever syndicate king or bloodstock agency king's bloodstock i think they do quite a lot of analytical work so it's interesting to see certain teams on the same horses um, but quite like him last week, I got outbid on him. I stopped at eight and a half and I think he went for 19. But I mean, that's the game in the sales ring. You win some, you, you lose some, but you kind of have an expected value that you place on each horse based on their profile and you try and stick to that. It's like, it's like any bet really. You want something for a value price and if, some, if, if you want to be price sensitive and if the price goes, then you've got to let it go. There's plenty more horses kind of still to come over the course of the year. Okay, now I was t I was speaking to a guy that I I know who's active in the sales ring, yeah. and he does it all by eye. So he was genuinely yeah, interested yeah. that I was talking to you. So he's given me a, f a few pointers for questions. So these have come from somebody in the game that yeah, you know yeah. wants wants to know. Um, his first question would be: You work remotely from videos. Is that a disadvantage when it's hard to tell how big a horse is? Yeah. So that's where we use the vet. So my video algorithms and the scores there purely a kind of scoring on movement. So they're not necessarily based on size or proportions of the horses. And actually I say what we found is, actually what you get is you get the scores of horses that are really good movers, but they might be a bit small and they might even be too small to say like really to then achieve their kind of ability potential. So that's why you have to layer in the human element as well. That's why you have to have someone doing a physical inspection. And again, based on the profile, that might be something you compromise on or something that you sacrifice. You say, God, it's a good mover, but it's a bit on the small side, but yeah, maybe we can live with it at the, the right price. But So yeah, not considering size and proportion, just movement, but we do it on the, the human side as well. Okay, well, his next question is probably going to be a similar answer. Yeah. And he, um, so the main concern for people buying horses is confirmation and wind. How do you make a judgment by video? But yeah. same, same thing, that... Um, do the wind on the scopes, get the vet to scope them. I am um, no confirmation expert. Um, I will completely defer 
to the people that really are and kind of super impressed by the people that are. But I suppose I'm a big believer you got to stick with like your own skill set or your own kind of call it edge or call it tool um, but then supplement that then with the expertise of different people so that's why we try and build up a bit of a collective picture okay and I think if my information is right you said you can get a wind test after you've bought a horse pending yeah. Yeah. purchase yeah so is it, do you do that or yeah we do that often what you get from the sales companies is you can add on like the option for a wind test so yeah we always do that as well it's just a kind of matter of due diligence or a bit of a health check Okay, so I want to go back to something you mentioned in part one, mm. um, that you, your mate James and you did the, the Northern Gamblers podcast. Yeah. So you told me before we did the interview that you've got no family background in racing or betting, yeah. and you got interested at 16. So, I mean, where did that spark of interest come from? Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, isn't it? I just think it's um, a, a fascinating sport and a, a magical sport. Like, it's... It's almost the greatest puzzle. Even if you were trying to design the greatest puzzle in the world, you probably wouldn't come up with anything as intricate and as multi kind of faceted and multi layered as horse racing. I mean, you've just got you've got the, the races themselves and the composition and the variables in the race, the horse, the jockey, the trainer, the track, the tactics. But then you've got the wider kind of full system or infrastructure of horse racing, kind of the, the different training centers, the different populations, the different jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictions, the strengths between them, the breeding game, the bloodstock game. I, um, yeah, I just think it's an absolute wonderful tapestry that you can almost never, it's infinite, you can never get to the bottom of it. I mean, I've spent 18 years trying to figure it out and certainly haven't got anywhere near cracking it nor little bits and bobs at this point but i think it's a fascinating puzzle and i've got quite an analytical kind of mind i would say um i was a management consultant for almost a decade um for my sins um and it's kind of a lot of those then business practices are kind of what i employ then in my kind of study of uh, of racing as well um i think also I've been quite fortunate over the years, like with mentors and education and that type of stuff, because there isn't, there isn't like a, a course on how, to, on how to understand horse racing. You, you have to learn it by doing and you have to learn it by skinning the game. That's also the magic and the beauty of it. Um, but as I said, James and I worked very closely for many years, just kicking ideas and angles about that taught us a lot. Just having someone as a sparring partner that you can talk through form talk through the dynamics of a race. I had a guy for a couple of years, a guy called Rob, who was a, was a real kind of mentor to me, taught me a lot of kind of the data aspects. Um, a brilliant guy, I would say you've got like famous guys like Alan Woods and Bill Benter, kind of the great thinkers. I would put this guy on the same level basically. He taught me a lot about kind of data modeling, feature engineering, understanding different variables about horse racing. So very thankful to him. And I mentioned Byron Rogers, and as I say, when it comes to a lot of the biomechanics stuff, Byron's been a, a very good coach. So learned quite a lot that way. So been fortunate to, to meet some good people kind of at the time and some of the right people. Um, but I think it, a lot of us just got kind of an endless appetite for investigation of the game and it gives you that opportunity to just keep going forever and invent new disciplines like biomechanics. <laughs> Who knows what technology will now open up? Probably a lot more. 
So how, I'm assuming that you weren't punting at 16, so did you sort of land with your feet on the ground and ready to take the bookies on at 18 when you were? No, definitely not. <laughs> no. I'm Simon, I'm not, a, I'm not a great better, to be honest. I'm not a great gambler. Like I've tried over the years, and anyone who's seen me on Twitter will know, like, had some great highs, had some real, like, like some good periods, like putting tips on Twitter and doing fabulous. Had some terrible lows, like absolutely like busting banks and kind of long losing runs. Um, so I've kind of learned it by practice over the years and like nothing, nothing is, nothing is wasted. Like even when you have a big losing run, it's a, it's a great gift because losing runs can be a great teacher in terms of mentality, in terms of discipline, in terms of resilience. So like, yeah, I've, um, I've punted on and off for probably 18 years now and I've had good months and good years and I've had bad years and I've, build banks and have blown banks and have learned everything in between. You must so. be the only person on Twitter that doesn't win every week. Ah, yeah, um, and, and finally, I mean, there's lots of um, podcasts out there yeah. at the minute. Um, but when you started doing it, there wasn't, that was a relatively new thing. So why did you, why did you decide to, you and James, to do a podcast? Um, I kind of got drunk one night um, and just decided that we were spending that much time talking about horse racing between each other we might as well stick a, a microphone in the middle um and it was just meant as a bit of fun really um and it, as you say it was before the massive influx of podcasts i wouldn't say we were the were the first but like one of the first couple that you would see popping up on twitter and it was just a chance that we were doing all the work anyway so and you, you thought oh, well let's let's put it out there and see if people enjoy it thankfully a couple of people did we used to get a couple of hundred listeners a week and try tried to do it with a I always try to do it with a bit of a different angle that it wasn't just about tipping it was also a bit about methodology um because that's what or, I mean you can probably tell it like as I say I'm not a great better I'm, I'm more of a researcher and it's what I enjoy and it's what my passion is but so we kind of tried to bring that little bit in as well like what methodology how can you analyze races how can you analyze kind of different systems and that type of stuff in horse racing. So I think hopefully people enjoyed it. And is, the po is that it now? Is there a chance it might resurface at some point? Oh, we, we, do a, we do a special every year. We do a classics special every year. Um, and James tips a big winner of at least one of the classics every year. And I tip no winners every year. So it'll be back next year. Okay, Tom, so he sort of self-depreciating comment the last uh, part saying that he wouldn't, tip any, he wouldn't tip any winners, but you wrote a book on angles for the Cheltenham Festival in 2020, and if people followed your advice and got the best prices, they'd have won over 300 points. So you're not that useless. I mean, what, what were the angles? Uh, that was a good one. So yeah, I had um, a couple of golden years with the Cheltenham Festival, and like, I was always like a big like angle punter, let's put it that way, like... Never almost individual horses, but almost like kind of systemic aspects that like might influence certain types of horses being value. And basically the crux of that was just bet on Irish horses at Cheltenham. That was basically what drove all of the profit. But there's a reason behind that was that Irish horses were, I mean, the handicapping was far too lenient to them when they came over. And also the exchange markets weren't reflecting that. So, I mean, I used to bet 
back every single Irish horse in every single race at the Cheltenham Festival. And it sounds mad, but actually um, because of almost the systemic factors of one population being inherently stronger than the other, Irish national hunt horses coming to compete against British national hunt horses, you almost had like a macro market edge that if you just kept exploiting it, it would generally pay off. So that was the, the crux of that. But, but the book, me, I just, it was another thing is kind of, you're doing all the work anyway. And anyone, everyone says that everyone's got one book within them. Well, well, what book might I have within me? And sadly, it's not a novel. It was a book about betting systems for the Cheltenham Festival. So yeah, put a couple of those things in there. Um, I'm also quite a big believer as well. Like when you get to championship races and it's true across National Hunt and um, the flat, it's very hard for middle level or small level trainers to win them. Basically elite trainers and elite jockeys win the large kind of majority of championship races. So what I also used to do is we used to just, and again, it sounds super simple, but you make a portfolio of all Willie Mullins horses, all Gordon Elliott's horses, all Henry de Bromhead's horses, and we used to follow them every year at the Cheltenham Festival. And generally, I mean, in the couple of years when Ireland smashed England in the Presbury Cup, you would you'd make money against the market just backing all of them effectively blind or it's almost what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a subset of the market out of the market so you're trying to make a smaller market where you actually have an edge versus the primary betting market where there's bookies over rounds and that type of stuff so doing that as an angle there was a, a couple of years as well where you could just back all Aidan O'Brien and John Gosden horses across the classics on the exchange and you'd make money every single year. It kind of took a dent last year because Charlie Appleby and the kind of re reemergence of Godolphin. But there are kind of systemic angles that are there to be played if you understand them. However, they do always run out. Um, and that would be a good example that it were great that it was once profitable just to back O'Brien and Gosden. But then with Appleby coming again and Godolphin reinvesting and Appleby establishing himself as an elite trainer that actually then took a dent. So no, no angles last forever. Is the, was is that, the mantra. did you anticipate that was going to happen? No, <laughs> this is <laughs> the problem. To say yes, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> definitely. This, is, that, this is the challenge. I mean, that, that's the, that's also why I'm, I say I'm not a great better Simon. That's the art of the game is understanding edges in the markets. But then of course, the magic is understanding any say, systemic changes that mean they might eventually kind of run out or they might have run the course or, or either the market has got smart to that specific variable or that specific factor and it's then priced in. Um, you asked me about Cheltenham. We had a really good couple of years based on the book at Cheltenham in 2020 and 2021. And then we had a losing year in 2022 I think I made 300 points in 2020, 170 points in 21, and lost 140 points in 2022. And that reason, the reason for that was because actually the British handicappers readjusted the handicapping conditions for Irish horses. They started penalising them more because they themselves realised this systemic advantage that the Irish horses had. Well, actually, what I should have done is... Not tell everybody not, in your podcast. But not to tell everyone in the book. <laughs> and also have noticed that that's almost like a, it's a change in the infrastructure that actually probably means that edge is going to be time expired. But yeah. um, 
as I say to and you can't have emotional attachments to these things and sometimes I do <laughs> but that's another betting discipline thing don't have emotional attaches to your edges because they will come to the end and look at any influencing factors or market forces that may mean they're running out or may influence and change them okay so is it going to be a 2023 Cheltenham book no I don't think so I mean just too much uh, too much time uh, running by mechanics on horses uh, every waking minute uh, these days and um, uh, there's uh, some great judges there on Twitter. Um, oh, I think they'll, on Twitter. they'll be they'll be carrying on the mantle. So I was going to never the question was going to be is punting a big part of your life still, but you've answered that question really. I am um, not like massively anymore. Like I used to run like a load of automated stuff in the cloud. I had like bots like in the cloud putting on bets for me and like even like two thousand bets a day. And like the, the turnover was quite significant at one period in time for a very small ROI, as I say. I probably built banks and then busted banks over the course of that period. But no, I just don't have time to do it anymore. I think that if you're gonna specialize in summit, and I have to balance it with things like family life, um, then you have to devote like all of your time to it. So I think people that regularly win against the betting market pretty much devote the life to it. I think you might have a golden six months or you might have golden year, but if you want to sustain that over a two year, five year, 10 year period, that takes a hell of a lot of work and a lot of discipline and a lot of hours. And so the people that do that, that's, that's the time it takes, in my opinion. You, do, you don't win easily. You don't win from doing an hour a day. You win from doing 10 hours a day. Yeah, and arguably, you've gone into an even bigger gamble now with investing in bloodstock. Yeah. People will tell you that that's a you know, much more precarious. Um, so I want to find out just a little bit more about the business. Yeah. So if I'm, I've certainly got a few quid and I'm looking to buy a horse at the next mm. sales, how much is it going to cost me for you to run your programs and your eye yeah. over my potential purchases? Right. So we do offer that as a, a service to kind of different partners. As I mentioned, I work with a trainer in the US, trainer in Dubai, big owner in the UK actually who's been really good to me. And a couple of other yards across the country. Um, pricing, you can email me for a price if you want one. Um, happy to discuss it. Um, happy to maybe even negotiate it. But what I do is I price sales a bit differently. So I have a price for a breeze up sales, um, and that's cheaper because generally people don't want to spend as much as the yearling sales, even though it's actually more work. And then any uh, catalogue that's less than 400 lots has a set price and any catalogue that's more than 400 lots has a, a different set price. It's kind of based on the amount of work that I have to do in preparation. Each sale takes about a week of analysis and then also all of the processing and computing power and costs that I have to use. You have to pay Google for the fortune of using lots of gigabytes and terabytes of cloud so storage and for using some of their machine learning services as well. So that's kind of priced in but email me if you want to discuss it anyway okay right so biomechanics now we're interested in betting yeah um is there a potential either now or in the future that biomechanics could be a useful tool mm. to work alongside the form book for punters yes i am um, i think because i tracked it a little bit or observed it a little bit after the breeze up sales and like I was following horses that then had strong ratings on biomechanics, then in a, certainly their debut run and their first couple of runs. Um, and I would say, yeah, it's, a, it's an angle 
in. There was one horse um, that scored very well. I can't remember what sale he's from. He might have been from the Gorsbridge sale in Ireland, um, but it's a horse called T-Cento. He was from the Craven. But anyway, he's called T-Cento. He's uh, by Invincible Spirit. Um, was bought by a syndicate called Shamrock Thoroughbreds, who raced with Edo McGuinness. I wasn't involved at all, disclaimer. Um, but he scored very well on the biomechanical algorithm. Um, he won a race at 100 to 1, and it might have been higher on the exchange. He built, beat like two nice Coolmore horses. I think they then sold him to Qatar Racing. Um, he raced at Royal Ascot, but it was probably too soon. Um, he'd have basically paid for the lot <laughs> and then there was a couple of others that have just come out and done really well so you could I would see two use cases I think there's one thing is either then taking the ratings from yearling sales and breeze up sales and then when horses run kind of using that as a rating system or mechanism particularly for debris runs of two-year-olds because um, you're kind of guessing on the form a little bit anyway time form do a kind of predicted official rating themselves so um I think that's more pedigree based, but it's a similar concept. You're predicting ability and on unraced horses. So you could use it there. I do know a couple of betting syndicates also are or are wanting to use it for parade videos. So when horses are in the parade ring, running certain evaluations on how well they're moving in the parade ring to then inform betting decisions as well. There is, um, there's a woman that you, um, often see in tracks in the north and she's um there on the side of the parade i don't know names i'm sorry just to call her a woman um but um so there's a lady there and she's um taking notes and she's often on the phone to hong kong relaying kind of physical evaluations of horses in the parade ring so um there's probably a use case there to use computers a little bit as well. Okay, so is there a potential in the future that I could watch a horse going down, probably in a two-year-old race, with my phone, see it and thinking, right, this will this this will definitely go on this going because of the way it's moving, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's um, I think that's that's a different model or it's a different target variable that you're trying to predict, but yes, possible. And I've talked a lot about ability rating or trying to predict ability potential. I think you could also use kind of target variables or outcomes that you want to predict like um, going suitability so you can take like the movements and um, the mechanics of certain horses and then say oh okay and then train them based on is that going to be a firm ground horse or is that going to be a soft ground horse you could also potentially do it for distance preferences as well um, I'm not sure if you'd beat Kind of traditional pedigree analysis because you can look in a pedigree and you can kind of generally articulate distance preferences or you can use they're using a lot of genomic profiling and they're doing a lot of kind of dna testing to work out distance preferences in horses now i think it's dr emmeline hill and there's an organization out of university college dublin that do that and you can get that done on yearlings as well um but I think, yes, you could. And actually, there's a couple of trainers in Australia that are interested in doing exactly that, is just take videos of every single one of their horses in their yard for the next couple of years and use that to determine kind of going going fit, going suitability. Okay, and in a, in a few years' time, potentially all in, incorporated in pro form and time form and those sort of things? Yeah, I think you could do. I think you'll see, um, or you'll see new analytical businesses spin up that will be um, using that type of stuff. Um, 
because I think where we are now with like technology, we're, we're on the, the tipping point of moving a lot more towards predictive st statistics rather than descriptive statistics. What we normally do is we look retrospectively in the past and say, so-and-so trainer does really well when he sends a runner on a Friday to Newcastle and it's raining. Okay, um, fine. That's a descriptive angle or that's a descriptive data set on the past doesn't mean it has any predictive influence on the, any outcomes for the future but I do think you'll start to see companies and I mean I mean betting syndicates are doing it anyway and have been doing it for years but I think you'll start and see companies coming into the public domain that provide predictive type ratings as well as I mentioned timeform do provide kind of a predicted official rating or ability of timeform rating uh, on two-year-olds as well. Okay, Tom, finally, you've advanced from punting, broadcasting and publishing to bloodstock and owning. Are you now looking to consolidate your position in all three or have other aspects of the game come into your sights? Well, I think a lot of work at the moment, Simon, with some of the uh, bloodstock analysis kind of would, would like, love to get that established um, over the, the next couple of years. Um, hopefully kind of support people and hopefully it proves useful and informative to them. Um, you know, ideas are always kind of spinning out of, of the woodwork. The, the good thing about when you start collecting data and you start making new data sets, almost new opportunities start um, emerging. Um, so we will see, like I've been thinking, like as this biomechanics data set grows, you're gonna get kind of biomechanic evaluations for horses and say when in 10 years time, you might be able to use that for breeding decisions because you might say, well, that, that mare was a really good mover. This sire is a really good mover. Then potentially, hopefully the progeny are going to be a really good mover. And again, I don't know whether that's predictive whatsoever, but more data you collect, almost the more business models that you can spin out off the top of it um, become possible. So every day, just learning, looking for new ideas, looking for opportunities and trying to explore the rich tapestry of horse racing even more. Okay, Tom, we'll be, uh, everybody will be keeping their eye on it. I'm sure Tom Wilson, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon.